0: From Paul's letter to the Romans, men exchange the eternal for the corruptible. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. One of the most beloved texts handed down to us from the ancient church is this little book on the incarnation written by a giant among the patristics, St. Athanasius. And it may be that no patristic theologian, with the exception of Augustine, can match Athanasius for sheer significance of contribution to Orthodox theology and as it's been handed down to us this very day. We owe as much... I think, to Athanasius as we do to Calvin or Luther or Knox or any other father in the faith. And so I hope in the course of these brief reflections over these weeks, as we look at some of his ideas in On the Incarnation, that you will come to see why. This man is a giant on whose shoulders we stand But Athanasius wasn't such a giant in his day, at least for much of his life. He was instead a thorn in the side of the church. And to understand Athanasius, you must understand the early centuries of the church were rife with theological controversy that would make your skin crawl I mean, these are not Presbyterians blogging about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. These are controversies in this period in history more like, is Jesus fully God? And because Athanasius staunchly defended the position adopted by the council of Nicaea just years before he was ultimately exiled five times, Slandered and persecuted constantly by the Arians, those who denied Christ's full deity and who had gained influence in the church in the years following Nicaea, this father in the faith found himself in the precarious position of standing for the gospel and therefore standing apart from those who had political sway in the church. And for this, he earned the epithet Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. He was not a giant in his day until very later in life. He was a pest, one whom the power brokers in the church tried to stamp out. And yet, by the providence of God, this little book on the incarnation, which Athanasius wrote in his youth, maybe even as young as 20 years old, Years before the Arian controversy, this little book has been handed down through our generations as a hallmark of Christological orthodoxy and as a beloved text to consider, especially in the season of Advent. I know that Noah picks up this text every year around Advent and reads it. So what makes it special? What makes this little work worth considering in these moments together? Well, the answer is, surprisingly, Nothing in particular. One biographer has noted that what we have in this little book is nothing but the positive, revealed content of the Christian faith. It isn't speculative. It's not original. It's not even a hot take. Not in Athanasius' time when he wrote it, and not today. It's a simple statement of the Catholic faith, once for all, handed down to the saints. It's not a book about Athanasius or even one that necessarily presents him to us as a theological giant. It's a book about Christ. The Bible's teaching about his preexistence, his incarnation, his life and death and resurrection. It's a book about the gospel. And that's what makes it worth considering here in these moments. And that by the way, is precisely what makes Athanasius an enduring theological giant. He gave his life to preach and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we sit this evening marveling at the mystery of the incarnation partly because of his work all those centuries ago. And so let us marvel together this Advent season not at a giant of a theologian but at the marvelous Christ he proclaimed. Now, if if there's an organizing principle to Athanasius' thought, and especially in this little book, it's, it's this idea of exchange. In fact, Athanasius himself coined the phrase, the marvelous exchange, to describe the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us in the gospel. The idea of exchange really organizes Athanasius' thought on the incarnation And it does so because it's a significant theme in Scripture. But the first exchange, the one we'll enter into tonight, was not undertaken by Christ. It was made by you and me. Because as we've just read from Romans chapter 1, men exchange the eternal for the corruptible. And to be sure, it's an exchange that every man makes. For we are all without excuse with regard to our perception of the eternal. Paul makes this clear, doesn't he? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. How can it be that men and women who are fallen in our very nature, corrupt to our very core, can actually perceive the eternality and divinity of God? It's because God himself has made those things known to us in his creation. It's true. We are blinded by what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. Not able to perceive ourselves rightly, nor discern the the depths of our own sin, nor to see the saving truths of the gospel without regeneration by the Holy Spirit. But, as our father John Calvin noted, we are not, however, so blind that we can plead our ignorance as an excuse for our perverseness. Because the Lord of creation has revealed himself to us in the things that have been made. And this revelation is no mere outward perception. It's an inward conviction, a sense of the divine, a sense, as Paul will go on to say later in Romans 1, a sense of our accountability before him. We are made, friends, to perceive and to enjoy the eternal, we're made to worship. On our street, we just moved to a new street this year, and on our street, there's one of those houses that puts up a million Christmas lights and tunes them to a radio station so that people can drive by and enjoy. And by the way, there's one of those on Jay Horn Street, and he appreciates it when you go and park in front of his house and watch the the lights for many hours. But we have, in our family, begun to enjoy already the, the light display. Just the other night, we walked down to this house, and we just sat on the sidewalk for a while and marveled at the show. I don't know how many lights there are, but it's marvelous. I mean, there are you know singing trees and, and talking elves, and, and as we sat there, I had this, this Clark Griswold moment where I just had to understand how everything happened every little bit, every little piece of that lighting display so that maybe next year I can rig up my house to compete with it. It's glorious. You should drive by and see it. But as I think back about that moment just a few nights ago, what strikes me about it is is this question. Why am I so captivated by this silly light display with singing trees? It's because I love glory. And I love to marvel even at things as silly as singing trees. You were made to marvel, implanted with a sense of the divine. And your life, in some ways, is a hunt for that buried treasure of glory wherever you can find it. But the problem, says Paul, is that we exchange our pursuit of the eternal For a pursuit of the corruptible. Although we know God, we do not honor him as God nor give thanks to him when his eternal glory is revealed to us in creation. Instead, our foolish hearts are darkened and they become futile. We become futile in our thinking, so that while we think we are wise, we instead descend further and further into foolishness. And Paul says that the ultimate proof of that descent is this, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We worship the shadow and not the substance. We trade the eternal for the corruptible. Friends, if If the marvelous exchange heralded by Athanasius in the gospel is the exchange made to impute the righteousness of Christ to us, this is that prior and tragic exchange whereby we trade eternal glory for things that are by their nature fading away and corruptible and dying And notice, in these verses, this is not just mankind dipping his toe into idolatry. This is a wholesale giving over of ourselves to some creature rather than the Creator. In our thoughts, in our affections, in our will, we chase after some end, some telos, some ultimate goal which will bring us the sense of glory once offered to us in the eternality of God. We are like C.S. Lewis' image of a child who is making mud pies in the slum when behind him there's a, an ocean, vast, full of beauty, ready to be enjoyed. What end are you chasing? Your life is oriented towards some ultimate goal. You can't help it. I can't help it. And that goal for each of us is ultimately shalom, the peace and glory that we were made for. But we exchange our longing for ultimate shalom, ultimate restoration for corruptible things that give us just a little hit of shalom along the way. Do you know why the travelers in in Lewis's classic, The Great Divorce, those sojourners from hell who are given a taste of heaven, Do you know why most of them ultimately choose not to stay in heaven and return to the slum town of hell where they came from? Because their taste of glory was so dulled by the lifelong exchange of the eternal for the corruptible that they no longer desired that ultimate peace. They've settled for the substitute. And for that reason... Scripture says they receive the just penalty for their sins. Now, there are two penalties mentioned here by Paul in Romans 1, and the first is a judicial abandonment by God to the things that we've traded for. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and dishonor. So God's judgment on idolaters begins even here and now when he says, You want to chase the corruptible? Go ahead. Do you know what the fruit of that pursuit is? It's a debased mind, and evil, and covetousness, and malice, and murder, and strife, and gossip, and slander. And do you know what the ultimate end of that pursuit is? Well, it's actually the second penalty. Romans 1, verse 32, though... They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. The second and the ultimate penalty for the exchange we make is death. When you exchange the eternal for the corruptible, you have given yourself over to the eternal corruption of death. Everlasting dishonor, everlasting separation from the eternal glory you will long for more acutely than any point in your life. That's the ultimate exchange we make with our sin. And it's devastating. Except that there is another exchange made by which that curse is reversed. And that exchange is made by one who, having tasted glory from eternity past, willingly exchanged it for a corruptible body, not in order to satisfy his own longing for shalom, but to draw his people back. To cancel the record of debt incurred by their foolish exchange by receiving in his own body the penalty for their sins. Death separation from His eternal happiness in the Godhead. For the eternal Word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and now we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God, who were born not of Blood, nor of the will of corruptible flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the eternal God. That's the marvelous exchange that we celebrate during this Advent season. I heard it said earlier today by another minister that Advent is really a a pathway to Christmas. That in order to taste the glory of Christmas, we have to first walk through the darkness of our own sin and the hope of a light shining in that darkness and the expectation of that light breaking in all the more as we wait for him. Advent indeed is a pathway to Christmas. It's a pathway to eternal glory. So may your taste for glory be stoked all the more in this season as we Celebrate Christ's first coming, and long for Him to come again. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we give You thanks for the glorious exchange made by Jesus Christ, our Lord, who took on corruptible flesh, though He Himself, being the eternal Word, was uncreated, preexistent, and through Him You created the world. And you set him to rule in this world, in your church. And yet, prior to his exaltation, he took the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He exchanged power and prestige for suffering that we might exchange the penalty for our sin for eternal glory. And for this we give you thanks, in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.